going to be looking at uh, Mark chapter 5, verse, verses 21 through 43. <clears throat> Let me pray and then we'll, we'll read through it and we'll, um, we'll get into it. Lord, I, I want to ask again that you would speak to us through, through your scripture. Um, and I know that the, the, the proper posture of heart is one of humility to hear from you. I think of Mary who humbled herself and sat at your feet to listen to what you had to say. Um, and I know that my pride at times blocks what you have to say because I think I know things already or I think um, I just think too much of myself. So Lord, I, I come before you and I humble myself and I ask that you'd start with me, speak to me, and speak through me, but as I rightly divide this passage with your help, Lord, I pray that you'd give us all ears to hear and hearts to understand that what you are saying to each of us individually, also corporately, um, we just really need to hear from you. Our lives depend on it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in verse 21 and we'll just work our way through to verse 43 and then we'll, we'll pick it apart. Verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered, gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she could be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, pressed in around him is what that means. And there was a, a woman who had a, char, a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under physicians. She had spent all that she had and she didn't get any better, but she actually grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in, a, in the crowd and touched his garment because she said, if I, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him and immediately he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my, gar my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd that's pressing around you and you ask, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth, told him everything. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, this is verse 35. While he was speaking, he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus said, saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all out, outside and took the child, child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Telephakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. She was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them not, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Okay, an amazing collision of two stories here. If you've noticed, well, we've been going through the, working our way through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, hoping that we can know Jesus. Let me just remind us of what, how, how and why Mark was written. Mark was not written necessarily to give us more cognitive information about Jesus, um, necess- not even necessarily a history lesson, although it is historically accurate. That wasn't his purpose or his main point. He's trying to get you to know a person. He's trying to get you to know um, the kind of person Jesus is, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what's his personality like, what gets him passionate, what makes him angry, what puts him at peace, what was his pace, what was his, all of those types of things. And you'll see that in this story. This story is, is, is a little bit, if you've noticed, a little bit literarily different than the other episodes. Uh, the rest of Mark, or at least up until now, you've noticed that the chunks have been in episodes. You can see very clear delineations. This happened. Stop. Then this happened. Stop. Then this happened. And now we'll move on to this. There's kind of been a marching forward. Well, here we have a collision of two stories, a blending of the two. We've got kind of two episodes blended into one, and Mark does that on purpose because that's really the main point in particular, this passage shows us the inner pace of Jesus. This, this story, it strikes me because it portrays Jesus as a peaceful, non-anxious presence in the midst of two very anxious situations that have collided and, and bled into each other. Um, you know, we've had days like this before. You know, you're on your way to do something important and something interrupts you. Something urgent happens. And Jesus isn't caught up in it. He doesn't react to it. He's not trying to manage it or stay in, on top of it. He's, he's in complete control. He's impervious to any sense of panic or anxiousness. Um, Jesus was never in a hurry. Did you know that? But going slow. In fact, one scholar, one theologian calls Jesus the three-mile-an-hour God because that's the average walking speed of a human being. He walked from place to place. This simply means that Jesus wasn't running around the Holy Land putting out fires, wasn't freaking out. When one new thing happened, he would, like like Superman, he would hear something and fly over there and save it, and then hear something else and fly over there and save it. That's not the idea. Don't get me wrong, Jesus wasn't aloof. There's no sense that he was out of touch, that he didn't get it, what was going on. No, he was a hard worker, He was very intentional. He was always about his father's business, but never, at the same time, never caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. Um, Let me me read you a few passages to back this up. This is uh, earlier in our study. This is from Mark chapter one. 
Um, It says, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon, those who, and those who were with him, they searched for him. Why? Well they, well, they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. In other words, you're late. You're out of touch. There are needs. People are coming. You know, the op- we've turned the open sign from or closed to open, and people are ringing the bell. And look what Jesus says. And he said to them, let's go to the next towns. He doesn't have to respond. Let's go to the next town so that I may preach there also because that's why I came. In other words, I'm in control. I know what I'm about. I know where I'm going. And he went throughout all of Galilee preaching. Here's another one. This is from Luke chapter five. I love this line. Um, He's got this amazing line here. It says, "Even even more the report about him went abroad and great because of that, great crowds gathered to him so that they could be healed of their infirmities. So, uh, you know, it's supply and demand. Jesus is there. He's changing the world. He's healing people. And because of that, it's generating more and more people. The word is going out. People are coming. And look, it says, but, that's a contrasting word, but he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. And the idea is the more pressure Jesus was under, the more he would get away and retreat and pray and be with the Lord, be with God. Opposite of what we would probably do. So here's what we're going to learn today in this uh, study. I I think this is really profound in this passage. We're going to learn three things regarding Jesus' inner pace and how, by faith in him, we can get a little bit of that too. I think we can use it. We can get all of it. We're going to learn three things. One, we're going to learn our frustration with slow and what this says about us. Our frustration with slow and what it means about us. Secondly, we're going to see the priority of Jesus' heart. And thirdly, we're going to see his tender, limitless power. Uh, first, let's look at our frustration with this. Because when we first hear this, I, you know, when I hear things like, hey, we should slow down, this, you know, I think, oh, this is good. Wouldn't that be nice? This is so refreshing. Slow down. You know, put my device away. Leave it in the kitchen. Uh, unplug a little bit. Have a Sabbath. Let's have a family meal and put our phones away. And, let's just, and we think, oh, this is so nice. Oh, yes, the slow pace of Jesus. But let's be honest. When the rubber hits the road and life hits, this is probably one of the more frustrating traits about Jesus to us. Let's just be real. This frustrates us in the moment. From a distance, we think, oh, that's really nice. I like that because we do need it. But in fact, I'd be willing to, to bet it just uh, my, um, my own life and then my uh, time in ministry, I'd be willing to bet that the, that the timing of Jesus or his slow pace or his, um, in our opinion, inexcusable delays is probably one of the aspects of following him that that causes the most doubt. That causes us to think, do you love me? Are you there? Don't you see what I'm going through? Why haven't you shown up yet? Just ask Jarius, look at the story. This is why these two stories are blended together because it's the point of the story. They're off to do something really important, save a little girl's life. They're in the, you know, they, they hop in the ambulance and they're flying down the road. And Jesus looks out the window and says, oh, wait, stop. I got to talk to that, that lady. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on here. Let me, build, let me take a few minutes to build it out for you. 
In this story, this prominent religious leader named Jairus comes to Jesus and tells him that his daughter, think of this, his 12-year-old innocent little girl is gravely ill. She's going to die. And Jairus, in an act of vulnerability and desperation for the love of his daughter, takes the risk to leave her side and finds Jesus and implores him to come and heal her, and Jesus agrees. Jesus says, yeah, let's go. And they, they set off. But as they're rushing to save this little girl's life, this huge crowd begins to press into Jesus, and they're being smothered by this crowd, and Jesus senses that some kind of power goes out from him, and he stops, and he pulls out this woman and starts having this conversation with her. Uh, to be honest, until yesterday, I had read past this part. This is one of those phrases in verse 35 where your eyes just kind of tend to go, go by. But look at, look at verse 35 says, it says, while Jesus was still speaking. In other words, it's like he pulled up a chair and started having a conversation with this woman. <laughs> now you're Jairus, right? Your daughter is hanging on by a thread. This is your last shot it's your only hope. You took a huge risk just to leave her side to go, you know, no parent wants to be absent when their kid is in their greatest need. They want to be there for that, as painful as it is. But he takes a risk and leaves and finds Jesus, and now Jesus is pulling up his chair, so to speak, to talk with this woman that he just kind of accidentally healed. And then the unthinkable happens. The exact thing that Jairus was praying against actually comes true. In the middle of verse 35, we read that someone came from Jairus' house and said, your daughter is dead. Can you feel it drop? Why trouble the teacher any, any further? And that's, that's, that is life. So much of the time, that is what it is. God virtually, and this is what this passage is saying. Okay, let me just say something really uh, blunt. This passage is saying what the Bible says throughout, and that is God virtually never works in sync with our time frame. Like the, the Bible, that's what I love about the Bible. The Bible would, uh, would, it's congruent with what we feel and experience here and now. God is virtually never works in sync with our time frame. More often than not, when it seems like we really need God to come through, more often than not, he doesn't come through when we think he should. And then we find out that he's over there helping someone else. <laughs> I recently uh, read a study, well, anxiousness. I recently read a study that the so-called Gen Z generation, that that's the generation that comes after the millennial generation, um, they are the most anxious generation in recorded history. In fact, and beyond that, you can read lots of studies, and sociologists have been telling us, you know, in unison, that across generations, anxiety is up in the West. Uh, there was just a recent article in the Seattle Times about how Seattle was ranked, um, amongst the pandemic year, Seattle was ranked 
one of the most anxious urban centers in America. Yeah, foam finger number one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We have things to be proud of. Why are we so anxious? Why are we so reactive? Um, why the intense need for control? Why? Well, um, sociologists like Christian Smith um, has done extensive work, and others like him have said that America, it's all about American culture and where American culture has been going. Uh, in American culture, they say that we have what, what's called a, at this point, a, what they call a residue of Christianity or a residue of Christian beliefs and Christian traditions. And what he means by that is that all of Western societies live within a, a secular framework. And even though many people still profess fairly traditional beliefs in God, most are still affected by this framework. So in general, in our culture, even, even for those of us who are claiming to be religious, even for those of us who claim to be Christians, we, we, here, are the, here are the marks of an anxious culture, Christian Smith says. We see ourselves as able to control our own destiny. So therefore, when we can't, it freaks us out. Okay? Also, we're able to discern for ourselves what is right and wrong. And so when life gets messy and complex and goes into the gray areas, it freaks us out. Also, we see God is obligated to arrange things for our benefit. If we believe in God, we think he's obligated to arrange things for us. Christian Smith calls this mindset moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what he says that Americans are. Um, we're deistic because if we do believe that there's a God, we believe there's a God who created and ordered the world but and watches over humanity and watches over the earth. It's moralistic because God wants people to be fair and nice and good to each other. Fairness is big. Fairness is king. And that's, you know, we would say that's what's taught in the Bible and other, most of the other major world religions. And it's therapeutic because the central goal in life, according to this philosophy, is to feel happy and good about myself. And God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life except that he needs to be there when I need to solve a problem. I don't really need to have a relationship with God, but I need to call on him to solve my problems or to come through for me. And according to Smith and others, this kind of worldview is the seedbed of an anxious culture the likes of which we have never seen before. And here's why. Because there's a premise underneath the panic there is a premise upon which our anxiousness is founded upon, is holding on to. Um, there's a premise on which panic and anxiety is based. God is supposed to make me happy. God is supposed to make me feel good about myself. Therefore, if I'm not happy, and when bad things happen, he's not in control, and I need to take matters into my own hands, and now I'm really scared and freaking out. Wait. I believed in you, God, and you should be answering my prayers. You remember a few chapters ago, we saw Jesus calm the storm. You remember that? It's the same type of an idea. There's a storm going on. The disciples who are these, um, they're these avid fishermen. They've been, on the, they've been through storms on this particular, on the Sea of Galilee before, but yet this one's got them at their wit's end. They, they're, they're finally to the point where they think, this is it, we're gonna die. And Jesus is sleeping <laughs> and they wake him up and they're mad 
They're mad. They say, don't you care that we're going to die? In other words, you're in the boat, so this isn't supposed to be happening. And Jesus calms the storm, and instead of turning around and saying to them, I understand how you guys could feel. You know, I get it. I was asleep. Or, you know, anything like that. He calms the storm, and he turns around, and he rebukes them. He gets right back in their face, and he says, why were you afraid? In other words, and this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, he's saying, look, you think that because I'm here, I can't let anything bad happen to you. The reality is, I can love you and work through bad things at the same time. That's, that's reality. I, sometimes, the, most, um, the best thing I can do for you, the most loving thing I can do for you is not something that will make you happy or feel good right now. Those, see, the Bible and Jesus can hold those two conflicting things, things that we usually think are pitted against each other. The Bible can use those in the same, can hold those in the same space. But we think God is supposed to make me happy and feel good. He's not in control. I believed in you. You're supposed to be here. You know, Amazon now. <laughs> you know, Prime now, two-hour delivery now. I don't want to wait. You must not love me if I have to wait. And that's what they're saying about Gen Z. One of the things that's making Gen Z, but I think all of us so anxious is what, well, part of, one of the things, it's not the whole thing, but one of them is the, these things. Instant. Instant. You know, what, how did we get places before we had phones in our pockets? I remember actually getting to a destination, but I wonder how I did that before we, I had my, before I had, or look, look at me, I'm all, I'm all, I'm like, I'm all, I've got every Apple product that they sell. So if I'm, if I'm lost on the road, I can go, I can literally just say, Siri, take me home. And she's like, finding directions to your house. It's an instant, safe control, right? And so, um, so mo many sociologists are telling us that, you know, this narrative in the Western world that we are progressive, they're saying it's actually true in a sense. We are technologically progressive. We are economically progressive. Um, we are, you know, uh, on the cutting edge of technology and all of these things. We're heading towards this technological utopia. And yet, Sociologists in unison, there's really not much controversy over this. Sociologists are telling us that though we are progressive technologically, educationally, economically, we are regressing emotionally. We're becoming less resilient, more anxious, more panicked. Um, our relationships are getting worse, clearly, obviously. Just look at the turmoil and the vitriol going on in our culture and in a lot of ways, we are very weak. And so if, there's, so if there is no God, or your view of God is that of moralistic therapeutic deism, which is what mo the majority, of, according to the numbers, the majority of Christians, quote unquote, today, that's where they fit, you're going to feel anxious. You're going to feel out of control, like everything is up to you. And you're going to feel bitter, entitled, you'll feel like you're a victim, that this is unfair, and those types of things. And here in this passage, Jesus is saying, if you're going to arrogantly impose your time frames on me, you're never going to feel loved by me. 
And that will be your fault, Jesus would say, because I can love you and, make you and not make you feel happy at the same time. That is possible. I can do that. Sometimes the most loving thing I can do for you is not to give you what you want. Parents know this. We know this. So that's the problem. The problem is that there are things in life Here's the problem with us in general. There are things in life that we believe we have to have in order to be happy. We believe, I've, I know better than God. I've got to have this in order to be happy. I've got to feel these ways in order to have a good, fulfilling life. And those promises, we wait for and we wait for and we wait for and we wait for and wait for and they don't come on time. I mean, go into a bookstore or, you know, go into a bookstore, the app on your thing, and look up, uh, you know, how to feel encouraged, how, how to change, um, how to be the best me now. It is prolific because there's such a huge need for it in our culture. How, I, I'm not satisfied with who I am. I don't like what I'm feeling inside me. I'm feeling anxious and panicked. How do I change? People are spending more and more money on life coaches and therapy, and those things are all great. But there's obviously something disparaging in our lives right now. And it's because we look at these promises and things we think we should have, and they're still empty. Situations are going on and on and on and on, and they don't seem to be ending, and at some point we lose hope. We start thinking, well, it's just never gonna change. And it's over. And what does Jesus say here? He says, don't panic, don't be afraid, just believe. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we keep going. So in a sense, the root, and I, I know this isn't fun to hear, but in a, it's, in a sense, the root behind our anxiety, our panic, our fear, our, those types of things is a sense of God owes me. This should not be happening. Or if this happens, that means God's out of control. There's, I have an idea of how the world ought to work. I have an idea how my life should go. I have an idea of the things that I really need to thrive. Those things aren't happening. Therefore, God has abandoned me. He doesn't love me anymore. But look at the priority. Look at, look at how Jesus is so different. Um, let, look at his priorities are different. Look how different he thinks. Oh, well, let me ask you this. Let me just put this before you. Let's say you work in the ER and in comes a woman who is not, um, she's, not she's chronically ill, she's not acutely ill, okay? She's, got, she's chronically ill, not acute. And, and in walks a 12-year-old little girl who is critically ill. In an emergency room situation, who do you treat first? Well, there's not a doctor alive that wouldn't say you treat the little girl first. She's the one with the immediate need. And yet Jesus does the opposite of that. Did you notice that? It, it should make anybody scratch their heads here. His priorities are so whack. Jarius is like, my daughter's gonna die now. This woman has had this issue with blood for years. She's been wrestling with her. Sure, it's bad. It's been, t it's been getting worse. Absolutely. But this is urgent. Jarius could make this case. I think if we were in an emergency room with our little girl, we would probably protest. We would say, I don't care if she got here first. This is urgent stuff. 
And yet Jesus does the opposite. Why? Well, for one thing, um, one of the great things about reading this is that we readers get a perspective that they didn't in the moment. In the moment, we don't really, but you know, we, we get this perspective. Jesus is thinking differently. He's thinking, okay, there's well, but then there's well. In other words, um, like uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was this incredibly gifted physician. He was gonna be the top medical physician in his country at the time of his career. And he gave it all up and stopped it and became a, a pastor. And the reason is, is because he said, I can heal somebody physically, but they're gonna get sick and die again. But I, this gives me a chance to heal somebody spiritually so that they can live forever. See, this woman with the issue of blood, sure, she's healed. And in our Western eyes, we think, well, that's the problem, and therefore it's done. It's dried up, it's over, good job. But Jesus knows more than that. He's got a different perspective than that. He says, no, I need to have a conversation with her so that she can be healed for all of eternity. I need to heal her soul. I need to heal her mind. And that requires some explaining. Jesus knows that even though this woman is healed, she still needs to understand some things to be ready for eternity. So he knows things that they don't in the moment, and that's one of the biggest things. Um, you know, again, I, I'm a dad, so I, 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 I see this all the time with my son. If I don't understand a good reason for it, there must not be one. That is the seven-year-old's mantra, or at least my seven-year-old's mantra. If I don't understand a good reason if I can't see a good reason, if I don't know, then that is, that is, then there can't be one. And so many times, one of the greatest metaphors in the Bible that God refers to us is his children. And it's God's um, loving but firm way of saying to us, it's time to grow up. I'm gonna do some things because I'm the father, I know more. I've got this infinite, eternal perspective. You have a finite perspective. Therefore, I'm going to do things to you and I'm going to show up at times that you don't expect, that don't make sense, and you're not gonna be able to see any good reason for it, but that does not mean that there's not one. And so what, so uh, let me ask you this. What is the first thing a child needs to do in order to start growing up? Take responsibility, but I would, I would suggest there's a step even before that, and that is to see that they're not responsible. To see that they are ch children. Humble themselves. I don't know what's going on. Um, someone asked me, uh, you know, what, what do I, what does someone need, what does somebody need to do to, to grow in their education, to become smarter? And I, I thought about it because I'm not that smart but I thought about it and I said okay the first thing I think you need to do is admit that you're not that smart and here's what I mean by that if you can approach any subject any book any any field of knowledge assuming that you don't know what you're talking about you will be much more open to listening and hearing other options but if you are convinced that you know the way of doing it there's all your there's all these other options and opinions and expertise available to you, but you can't see it because you're, you're holding on to this. But if you can come and say, yeah, I know some things, but I don't know everything, that opens you up. That principle works. I, I would say that to every person that wants to continue in their education. Start humbly. 
There are people that have gone further than me. There are people that have researched more than me. There's people that have lived longer than me. I've got a lot to learn. I don't, I'm not dumb, but I'm not smart either. I don't, know whatever, I don't know everything. I know some things, but not everything, and I can always learn more. I think one of the greatest ways that we can grow up, even in our old age, is to admit that we still have some growing up to do. We're children compared to God. He knows more. He's up to some things, and that's where faith comes in. That's why he doesn't say, let me, he doesn't say to, the, to, Jer, to Jarius, don't panic, let me explain. He doesn't say that. He says, don't be afraid, believe. In other words, trust me. And it's one of the, you know, when parents know this, when kids say okay, and they trust their parents, even when they don't see a reason why, that's real growth. That's beautiful. There's connection. There's relationship. There's a camaraderie. There's a sense of vulnerability. All the things that relationships and good health uh, need. So, um, Jesus does the opposite. Furthermore, think of this. Just going a little bit further here in, in the uh, priorities of Jesus, think of it socioeconomically. Jarius is a man. He's a religious man. He's a prominent figure in his community. He's probably very wealthy. He's a synagogue leader. He's considered blessed. He's considered wealthy. He's respected. He is um, a, a leader of the community. He's someone that is important. Now, let's think about this woman. She's a woman in a society where women were little more than property. A woman's uh, testimony was not even admissible in court in that society. Not only that, she's a broken woman. She has this physical malady that she has not been able to uh, have any progress on. In fact, it's gotten worse and worse in a society that believes that if you have an ailment, you are cursed by God. She's poor. We've read about that. She spent all of her life savings, all of her money trying to fix this problem. So we've got this woman who is, she's a woman. She's poor. She's stigmatized. She's rejected from society. She's ashamed. And yet Jesus spends, he pulls up a chair and sits with her, heals her. This is the stuff that makes you love Jesus. This is the stuff that just makes you love the Lord. One scholar, I should have written it down, I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but one scholar said it so well. He said, here's Jesus um, telling a wealthy man he needs to wait while he, while he ministers to a woman. Something along those lines. Look at the priority. Now, we have to ask ourselves why. Why? Why, there's, if there's a premise underneath our anxiousness and a premise underneath our panic, if there's narratives that are driving these emotions and these things, which there are, then that means that there's a premise underneath Jesus' pace, his priority, and I would submit to you that it's to show his grace. I, I think that everything Jesus did, I think, I think Jesus' behavior his deeds, the way he did things, his pace was affected by an overall inner sense of unfathomable, um, un relentless grace. In other words, he's saying, Jarius, it doesn't matter who you are. 
It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've read. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care that you've done all these things. And he says to this woman, I don't care who you're not. I don't care what you what you failed at. I don't care about your disease. I don't care about your gender. I don't care about those types of things. My grace is for anyone, for everyone. In a society that based God's favor on, on, um, on performance, on production, on achievement, and we do too, we do too, it's like a computer program running in the background. You may not think it up here, but the minute you look in the mirror, you, it begins. Why do I look like that? Oh, I'm, this is starting to get lower than this. Why did I do that the other day? Oh, I, I woke up late. Oh, I, you know, it starts. It starts performance. Oh, I should. We start, you know, you know what I like to say. We start shooting on ourselves. Oh, I should be this. I should do this. I should have done this. I should do this. I should do that. Yeah, it's on purpose. We start shooting on other people. Oh, if only you would do this, and you should do this, and you should do this. It's performance, right? Achievement. Once I, when I can do this, then. If I, then. Once I, then. I'll start doing this, and then. See? And Jesus comes in this story, and he, he just turns that whole thing. He just equalizes the whole thing. He turns the whole thing around, and he says, Jarius, you can wait. My grace is for everybody. Your status doesn't affect how I'm going to love people. And this is the point. No matter where you are, no matter how hopeless you seem, no matter what you've done or how many times you've done it, I don't care if you're on the paid staff of evil itself. <laughs> if you've done some horrific evil things, God still says, you can come to me. I'm coming to you. My love is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. There's forgiveness for you. My love is inexhaustible. You are forgiven. You can be forgiven. No matter how, and we come in with these shame things. Well, I can't because I did this, or I, I'm limited because of this. Well, if they only knew what I did. God, Jesus blows that all away, and he says, it doesn't matter. I'm here to love and give my, it's a remarkable grace. And that's got to change your priority, right? Your beliefs change how you look at yourself, look at others, the way you behave. It, it affects, the reason you are the way you are, promise you, the reason you are the way you are, the good, the bad, the, everything in between, is because you believe some things. You have a theology in your mind. You think about God in a certain way, and that leads to everything. That, expl that's, that explains everything. And that's why Christianity is so powerful. It's not going to talk about your behaviors at first. It's going to talk about a change in your heart that will affect eventually your behaviors. The more we understand grace, the more we understand his love, the more we understand how much he loves us, the more we understand the depths of our own brokenness and our own sin and how his love is still there and still loves us the same, the more we get all of those things, the less we're going to be able to judge other people. If I am unfathomably sinful and broken and yet God so loved me that he sent his son to die for me, how can I look down on anyone else? How? If I get that, how can I let, look down on anyone else? 
unless I still think that I somehow achieved this on my own. Yeah, I know the doctrine that, you know, we're all sinners, but let's be real. I'm here because I'm pretty well put together and I've got, this, I've got living down. But if I see the, that even in that self-righteous attitude, there's evil and sin in that, I'm fully, as Calvin and the church fathers put, I'm fully broken. Sin has affected every part of me. And I could not save myself. This is an insoluble problem. And Jesus came and rescued me when I didn't deserve it. He came for the worst and he saved me. Then when I run into broken people or when I serve the homeless on a Sunday night, it's, if I get that to the degree that I understand that is to the degree I cannot look down on that person. I can still be hurt by them. I can still be affected by them. But at the end of the day, I see them and I see myself. And I say, yeah, I, I get it. And God rescued me. His love is for anyone. Also, this is Jesus. We're gonna see his power in a, in a, in a, in a quick second. The point is, to Jesus, it doesn't... It, obviously to Jesus, healing a living person and healing a dead person makes no difference. That's another reason why he's not, he's not rushing to this girl who's about to die. That's another reason why he didn't rush to La his friend Lazarus's place when he, when, when he was about to die. He took his time. He got there slow. You know that famous story, another frustrating story of Jesus showing up late. Well, it's because to him, um, look, and we'll, this goes right into the next point, the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. To him, there's no difference with healing a living person of healing a dead person, so he's not in a hurry. Um, look at verse 38. This is the final point. It says, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and, and wailing. Look how um, cavalier Jesus is. Look how almost sarcastic he is. Look at this. And when he had entered the house, he said to them, he goes, why are you guys weeping and making a commotion? The, girl, the child is not dead, she's sleeping. Almost mean. You know what I mean? Like something you do not say in a hospital. Do you walk into a hospital room and say, oh, you're fine, get on up. I would not send you on behalf of our church to the, if that was your bedside manner. And yet Jesus, he walks in and these people are, she's, she's gone, she's dead, it's over. And they're weeping and they're, you know, they're doing what you're supposed to do in that society. You're supposed to grieve and weep and they have a whole cultural mechanism for this thing. And Jesus walks in there flippantly, cavalierly, and he says, what are you guys doing here? She's not, you know she's not dead, right? She's just asleep. And look what, look at, and they laughed at him. Um, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and he took the, ch the, the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went in there and look at this power, look at this power. Ta uh, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Telethakumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Our translations don't really muddy this down, unfortunately. Um, um, Telitha means little girl, but it's, it's actually, it's one of those words that... Um, Every culture has a word for this, but it's different. Like some cultures say, sweetheart, or baby girl. 
Or maybe in your house it's different, you know, cupcake or sweet, sweet pea or whatever it might be. It, in this culture, this was, this was an endearing uh, term that a father would say, to, it, it's so tender, it's so beautiful. It says little girl. And the word that he says, uh, kumi, it, it's not a word referred to raising the dead. It's a word used by a father or a mother when they're gently waking up their little girl in the morning. So when Nicole goes in in the morning get, to get Noble up for school, she says, hey, sweetheart, it's time to get up. That's the scene here. And here's, here's why I want you to notice the tenderness, but I also want you to notice the power here because who's, who's Jesus' foe here? It's the ultimate enemy in the Bible. Death. Death is the ultimate enemy in the Bible. Our culture might say, you know, death is our friend. It's the circle of life. We need to accept death and befriend it. The, the, the Bible would say it's a damned lie. Death is our enemy. We were meant to live forever. And Jesus came to conquer it. And look how easy he does it. He doesn't stand back and roll up his sleeves and say, and, you know, take his strength. Just like all the other stories we've seen. Calming the storm, same thing. He wakes up in the boat and he basically says, Really, in the, it's a rough translation, but it's accurate. Sit down and shut up to a hurricane and just like that. Last week, we saw that he was confronted or uh, uh, 6,000 or so demons and one man came, saw Jesus and immediately abased themselves before him and begged him, don't hurt us, don't torment us. Why? Because Jesus simply said, come out of him. Effortless. And here... Jesus reaches down into death like waking up a little girl. That's how easy it is. He reaches down into death and he says, sweetheart, upsy-daisy, it's time to get up. Oh, the power of it. It doesn't phase him. He treats death like it's a good night's sleep. He's cavalier about it. She's not dead, she's just sleeping. To me, it's, that's, that's, that's as easy as, that's what he's saying, that's as easy as this is gonna be. You might as well not even weep. And you know what he's saying to us? In heaven, someday, when you and I are there, we will look back on this time and your worst day here, your worst life here, and compared to eternity, will be nothing more than a bad night's sleep. Do you understand that? We're talking about perspective. You've been through a lot. I understand that. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just giving you perspective. Uh, one person said, you know, when you hold up a penny, let's pretend this is a penny, and it's all you look at. It's all you can see. But when you pan it back in light of everything else that's here, it becomes what it actually is. It's still a problem. It's still here but compared to eternity, and that's what we forget in our world, in our culture. Everything is here and now. Amazon now. So we get anxious. Not two-day delivery, two-hour delivery now. I want patience now. I want joy now. I want inner fulfillment now. I want all this now. It's too late. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, don't you understand one day, one day for me is as a thousand years, says the Lord. In other words, 
to, in God's perspective, in the Bible's perspective, time is, re- is pretty relative. You know that. We, we know that. I have a friend who's German. <laughs> You've met him. He's a missionary. He, um, and he's in Austria. He grew up in Austria. He came to visit here last summer and spoke. His name's Ivan. He will get mad at you if you're 15 minutes late to an appointment with him. Yeah. And the whole culture is that way. If you're not clean, if you don't have your stuff in order and you're unorganized, and if you're late, like my mom always used to tell me, if you're consistently late, Michael, you can be consistently on time. It's one of those things, yes, I know, it's one of those things you can't even argue against your mom, you know, it's like, well, you are right. Um, But then you go to South America, you go to Africa, they're not going to get mad at you until you're four hours late. It's slow, right? That's what he mean, what God has said to me. God is not slack concerning his promises. What that means in Peter, he's saying he's not slow from his perspective. He's slow in your perspective, but he's not slow concerning his promises. For one day is as a thousand years to the Lord. In other words, he's going to do what needs to be done. That's the story of, you know, God promised Abraham that he would send a savior to the world. How long did that take? 2,000 years. Or so, depending on your math. So, what do we do? How do we get this? How do we access this? It's so simple, um, but it's, yet it's so, it's so profound. What does he say? It's what he says to all of us. Don't be afraid Trust me, believe, trust me. Every day, trust me. Put your faith in me, lean on me. There are things you're not gonna understand. In fact, the normal way of grace, the Bible will say, the normal way of grace is that it will not be, more the times than not, it will not be when you think it should be. The Bible, is, it's a blessing for the Bible just to say up front, that's gonna be normal. That's not abnormal. That's very normal. Rarely does God work when you think he should or the way you think he should. That's life. But there's some beautiful things in the midst of it. One, it teaches us to trust. It teaches us his wisdom. It shows us his grace. It's what we need. How does Jesus have this power? How can we tap into this too? How does he have this power to be so flippant with death? How can he do it? Only because, really, not, you know, it's, not the, it's not the short answer, because he's God. Yes, but you need to understand, death is a problem. Death is also a problem cosmically. In the beginning, when God created the universe in the Bible, he you know, let there be light. Let there be animals. Let there be people. He did not say, and let there be forgiveness. Let there be no death. Why? Because that, when the curse happened, that took some doing. There's a whole what we call redemptive history that, uh, that it took God to solve that problem. And yet Jesus shows up here and super flippantly and easily just kind of says, hey, upsy-daisy little girl, here you go, come on up. How could he do that? Only because, only because 
at the end of Mark, we're going to see Jesus submit himself to death. Do you understand that? That's where his power comes from. It's all in the cross. The only, in fact, it was so certain that Jesus was going to go to the cross and let death envelop him. He was going to let this enemy press in on him and, just, and literally unravel him on the cross. And because he was going to take all of our death, he was going to take on death itself and beat it on the cross, it was so certain that he was going to do that that it retroacted back to everything that he did. In other words, that's how sure his promise is. When he says it, when God says it, when Jesus agreed to it, when he said, I'm going to the cross, it was as good as done, which means he could borrow the benefits of it even though it hadn't been paid yet. That's how good it is. It's like when a bank gives you a loan. They're saying, you're good enough to eventually be able to have this money, so we're gonna give it to you. We're gonna retro it to now. What you're doing when you get a loan, you're investing in the future. You understand that? Banks know that you're borrowing money from the future. You just don't have it now. And they do this assessment on you, and they look at your job, and they look at your credit score, and they look at your history and where you've lived, and they take references, and they build a case that say, okay, his word or her word is good, so we will, we will take the money from the future and we'll, put it, we'll give it to you now because we're, your word is as good as done. You're gonna pay us back. And if you don't, there's some serious penalties. But think of Jesus. He says, I'm gonna redeem mankind. Done. It's as good as done. And this power comes to him that he can beat death itself before he goes to the cross. Because he's gonna do it. He's gonna do it. Death is defeated to the point where he says, you know, the famous line, the, the, one of the greatest lines in the Bible, Jesus says with that, I, I picture that smirk on his face, death, where is your sting? In other words, I beat you. And I didn't just beat you for me, I, bet I beat you for everyone. So that now you can know this life is not all there is. Your death, you will be resurrected. You will go to heaven. And in light of eternity, what you're going through now on this earth with COVID and Omicron and all the stuff that's going on and the other things that will happen yet will be nothing more than just a good or maybe a tumultuous night's sleep compared to all of eternity. That's how you have peace, by believing it, by trusting it. Don't be afraid, trust. He's sleeping in the boat. There's things happening that you don't understand, but he knows. Trust him, trust him, trust him. Amen? Amen. Amen.